Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Come on back in. Well, you may or may not know the name Andy Williams, but I'm guessing you have heard his Christmas song. Um, As an early gift to you, I would like to sing a portion of this song. The applause has already started. I, I love it. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let us end in prayer. No. As your second Christmas gift, I will read the rest of the song. With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the happiest season of all. With those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings when friends come to call, it's the happiest time of the year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Yes, as the song says, Christmas for many of us at many times is the most wonderful, happiest, heart-glowing time of the year. But you may also know that it is also one of the saddest, most heart-wrenching, most depressing times of the year. Surveys have shown that about 45% of Americans, that's nearly half of Americans, dread the holiday season. In fact, Christmas is the time of year that people experience the highest incidence of depression. Why is this? Why is it that during the happiest season of the year is also seems to be the sad, saddest season of the year? As I thought about this, the conclusion I came to is more than any time of the year, Christmas painfully reminds us of the great disparity or divide between what the world is supposed to be, wonderfully happy and heart-glowing, and what the world often is, which is broken and lonely and sad. Particularly for those who have lost a loved one, Christmas can be a very difficult season of the year, whether that be a grandma or a grandpa, a mom or dad or husband or wife, Christmas, especially that first Christmas, seems a little empty, like something is missing. Christmas can even be harder for those who have lost a child or a grandchild, either in the womb or in infancy or childhood. Nothing shows the disparity of what the world is supposed to be and what the world is when a parent has to buried their own child. Christmas reminds us of the child's absence as there is one less stocking on the fireplace, one less plate at the table, one less set of Christmas PJs 
to purchase. The messages this December uh, have been heavier than probably ever before in my preaching. But the reality is we live in a heavy world. And I'm so thankful that you guys have been receptive uh, as we've walked our way through 2 Samuel. But I'm even more thankful that we have a God who does not ignore or shy away from the 45%. I'm thankful that we have a God who does not shy away from heavy and sad realities in this world. I'm thankful that we have a God who does not turn his head from our sadness, but enters into our sadness with the hope of Christmas. If you would, please open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, Next Sunday is Christmas Sunday, and we will be looking at the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. Uh, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus together. Um, But today, we want to finish our series in 2 Samuel. Again, the context of our passage today is that God has raised David up to be king over all of Israel. God has blessed David and Israel tremendously, expanding their territory over the entire promised land. But then we get to chapter 11, and David seems to throw all of that away to enter into an adulterous affair Uh, with this godly man's wife, Uh, the man's name is Uriah, and the woman's name is Bathsheba. As a result of this affair, uh, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And in order to cover up what David had done, this adulterous affair, David sends Uriah into battle and has him killed along with many other Israelites. It is a massive conspiracy. About eight months passed between chapter 11 and chapter 12, which we looked at last week or started to look at last week. During this eight-month gap, David uh, runs from God. He hides from God. He does not confess his sin or repent of his sin or deal with his sin, but he is running from the Lord, and he is tormented by his sin and by his guilty conscience. And so in chapter 12, God, by his grace, pursues David and confronts David through the prophet Nathan. And through the working of the Holy Spirit, he convinces David of the seriousness of his sin. And David repents and confesses and is restored in a relationship with God. And that's where we pick up today's passage. We're going to overlap a little bit from last week. We'll start reading in verse 13, um, and then we will finish the rest of it in, in later in the sermon. But we'll go through verse 18, uh, the first half of 18 today. And, and again, the passage starts with David's genuine repentance and the Lord's quick and gracious forgiveness, okay? So here we go. Let's look. Verse 13, 2 Samuel chapter 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. Let's pray. Lord God, we we come into Christmas with so many different feelings and emotions. 
Uh, many of us come in with just pure excitement and joy and delight. We're so happy to see the world somewhat be put together in a way that it's supposed to be with more, po- with more peace and more generosity and more love. We're excited to celebrate the birth of Christ. And yet, Lord, during the Christmas season, there's also a lot of heartache, heartache as we think about things that have not gone the way that they should go, whether that be a fractured family that we're a part of or whether that be the death of a loved one. And so, God, pray, pray that through this passage today, that you would comfort us during this Christmas season and remind us of the hope that we have, the unwavering hope we have in the Christ child. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. This Christmas, as wonderful and happy and heart-glowing as it might be at times, we all know we live in a fallen world and there's no way around it. And so the question I wanna ask is how should we as Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, how should we approach life in a fallen world? And more specifically, just given the week that we're in, how should we approach Christmas in a fallen world? Well, the first thing that we see in this passage is that we should grieve death in a fallen world. We should grieve death at Christmas time. Look at verse 13 and 15, through 15 with me again. It says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. We see in verse 13, as we mentioned last week, that David's short, even somewhat underwhelming confession and repentance, I have sinned against the Lord, opens up the floodgates of God's mercy and grace to grant him immediate forgiveness of his sins. God also says that he will put away or he will transfer David's sins to another, that also being the penalty of David's sin to another. And we ask the question, who does God transfer this sin unto? Well, it tells us in this passage that he transfers at least the consequences of David's sin onto his son. We may not like this reality, but we know that this reality is true, that the sins of the parents are passed down to the next generation. The consequences of the parents' sins are passed down to the next generation. You can look at parents who you know are addicted to drugs or alcohol or gambling, and you can see how their sin has consequences on the next generation. But this takes it to a whole nother level. Because of David's sin, his child, who is unnamed, is going to die. In this passage, David is a type or a shadow of Adam. And this child is a type or a shadow of Christ. You see, it is because of the sin of Adam, our first father, that death has come to all of humanity, to you and me today. And it's because of the death of Christ, like this child, that our sin is put away or transferred to another, that we might live forever and for always. We'll, we'll talk more about this later, but, but this is what we are seeing, the picture of Jesus, even in this passage. Verse 15 continues, and it says, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Really quick notice whose wife it says Bathsheba is. It says the wife of Uriah. Not David, but the wife of Uriah bore David's child. Verse 16, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and wept and, and lay all night on the ground. 
And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. You know, I'm curious if you have ever been in such a place, watching a loved one dying or hearing about a loved one dying, hoping and praying and promising to God that you will do anything if he works a miracle to allow this loved one to live. This is where David was. He was fastened to the ground, unwilling and unable to get up off the floor. David was fasting and praying, hoping that the Lord would be gracious and merciful and spare the life of his child. David was also grieving and lamenting because David knew the child was most likely going to die as a result of his sin. Verse 18 continues and says, on the seventh day, the child died. This is the day before the child would have been named, the day before the child would have been circumcised. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, David, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. Evidently, David was kind of on suicide watch here. This is how deep his agony and his pain and his grieving and his pleading was. Verse 19, but when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Maybe you have heard those words of a loved one, that, that a loved one has passed on, that they have died. If the death was expected, maybe due to cancer or something like that, maybe a lot of your grieving happened before they passed away, just like we see here for David. But if, if it was unexpected, the grief just floods upon you after they are gone. Maybe you have found it hard to get out of bed or hard to eat, hard to find God in all of it. See, grieving the loss of a loved one, even, even at Christmas season, is, is vital for our souls. And if we ignore the grief and bury the grief, it will explode like a volcano in very unhealthy ways. I met with a friend recently who lost his father when he was a child. And he said that after his father passed away, their family never talked about their father's death ever again. They never processed their father's death. They never grieved their father's death together. They all just kind of went their own separate ways and kept their emotions to themselves. Now, several years later, later, there are those in the family who have become extremely bitter and angry, and it has fractured the family apart. You know, Jesus says something that is shocking in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This means that if you fail to mourn those whom you have lost, if you fail to mourn the effects of the fall, you fail to receive the full comfort that God has for you. Even Jesus, when his friend Lazarus died, wept. And so how should we as Christians approach life in Christmas in a fallen world full of disease and death? It is good and right to grieve the death of loved ones especially since the beauty of the Christmas season reveals, again, the disparity between what the world is supposed to be and what the world actually is. And so that's how, that's how we should engage Christmas, grieving 
the effects of the fall. Second, we should worship God at Christmas. Now, this probably seems like a no-brainer. Yes, of course, we should worship God at Christmas. But when you are given the context of this passage, in the context of our lives, what we see is it's not so easy or so simple to worship God because we live in a fallen and broken world. Remember, this is right after David finds out that his child, whom he had just been petitioning the Lord to spare, has died. Verse 19, but when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. And then here's just this heart-wrenching verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. You know, David could have responded to death in a lot of ways. David could have responded to the death of his child by isolating. He could have responded to the death of his child by by getting lost in a bottle. He could have responded to the death of a child with bitterness and despair and despondence and anger towards God. But David did none of these. David responded to the death of his child by worshiping God. David has been fasting for days. David hasn't even eaten yet. And yet, before he even eats, he goes to worship the Lord. Who does this? Who worships God in the hardest day of their life? It is someone who hungers for the Lord more than food. It is someone who values the Lord more than life itself. David now knew more than ever that he needed the Lord to comfort him in his grief. And so he went and worshiped the Lord. In Psalm 34, David writes and sings this. He says, the Lord is near. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. I was talking to a friend recently and they just said, you know, Christmas is just bah humbug for me every year now. Maybe this verse is for you. To know that the Lord is near the brokenhearted. David knew that neither food nor alcohol nor women could comfort his broken heart. The only one who could comfort him was the Lord, and so he went and worshiped the Lord. We see a similar story in the book of Job. Job was a righteous man, and after losing all of his uh, property and all of his children, we read this in Job 1. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, anyone can bless the Lord when things are going well. Anyone can say, oh, I am so blessed. Blessed be to God. But how do you respond when tragedy strikes? How do you respond when you realize that that the family does not look the way you want it to look during this Christmas season? How do you respond when there is the grief of the loss of a loved one? David shows us that we can come and we can worship the Lord and be comforted by our God. Verse 20 continues and says, David then went to his own house after worshiping the Lord. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants, who are confused by David's response, said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, 
I fasted and wept for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David's servants were surprised by what seemed to be a quick rebound. When David's son was sick, they thought he was to the point of hurting himself, maybe taking his own life. But once the son has died, he got up and he worshiped the Lord and he went and he ate food. You see, even though he was pressed down, he was not crushed. And they wondered why. And David explains it to us in a very helpful way. David said when the child was still alive, he pleaded for the Lord to be, quote, gracious to me. Meaning David understood that if his child lived, it would be an act of God's grace. That it wasn't something that David deserved. David did not deserve to enjoy his child who had been the fruit of this adulterous affair. And so he pleaded for grace. But he also, what's really interesting here, is that he actually pleads not for the child, he pleads for himself. Look there again, it says, David was petitioning that the Lord would be gracious to me. Not that the Lord would be gracious to the baby, but the Lord would be gracious to me, David. Why would this be? Why would, why would David not be praying for God's grace upon the child, for the child to live? You see, the death of the child would mean heartache for David, but not for the child. David knew with full assurance where his child was going upon his death. David knew that he was not going to have to suffer the miseries of a fallen world, but that he would be going to Abraham's bosom and be in heaven with God for all eternity. And that's why in verse 23, David says, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. You see, David is grieving over his loss not over his child's reward. Let me illustrate this way. Several winters ago, uh, well, Trisha's parents now go out to uh, Arizona to winter to enjoy the nice warm weather, to go hiking, to enjoy the beauty of it. And so they said, hey, we want to bring the kids out. And so her and her two brothers got on a plane and they went out to Arizona. And I got these pictures of, of them in t-shirts. And it's, it's like in February, the middle of winter. They're in t-shirts. They're hiking. They're smiling. They're having fun. They're playing games together. You know, there's no kids around. So they're, they're, they're free to do whatever they want. And, and you know, during that time when I, when I received those pictures, I did not feel sorry for her at all. Um, there was no reason to feel sorry for her. I, I felt sorry for myself um, because I was in this dark, cold climate and, uh, I mean, enjoying my kids, but also having to parent my kids. And so I did not feel any sadness at all for her. I did not feel any disappointment for her. I was happy for her. I was sad for me. David was able to recover quickly because he knew that while his grief had just begun. The grief of this child was over. There was no need to feel sorry for this child, for this child got to forego the pains and darkness of the winter of this life and be delivered straight into the surpassing warmth and brilliance and the joy of the glory of God. You see, when a loved one dies in the Lord, we do not grieve for them. We grieve for ourselves. 
And this is one reason why David can get up and worship even in the midst of tragedy because of the certain hope David had that his child was with the Lord and that one day David would be joining him. As the verse says, we are called to grieve, but as not, not as those who have no hope because we have the hope of heaven. Whether David is in plenty or in want, whether David's life is going well or is falling apart, David has learned in all situations to trust the Lord, to rely on the Lord, and to worship the Lord because there is no other refuge for him to run to, no other father that can comfort him in the midst of a fallen world. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Just to recap, how should we as Christians approach life and, and during the season Christmas in a fallen world? Well, it is right and good for us to grieve the death of loved ones, also the death of relationships. We should grieve the results of the fall. But we should also worship God in the midst of the brokenness, knowing that we have the hope of heaven given to us. Finally, we should celebrate Christ at Christmas season. Look at verse 24. And we're going to stay here for a little bit. But it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. Two significant things here. First off, notice the passage now calls Bathsheba David's wife, not Uriah's wife. Something, something's changing here. The, the second thing is, is that David is comforting his wife. Uh, previous to this whole thing with Nathan the prophet confronting him, David treated Bathsheba like a piece of meat. He used her as an object to fulfill his desire. He, he wrecked her life. And yet now there seems to be this change in David where he goes to comfort his wife. David is a changed man. The David we read about two chapters ago is different than the David we read about here. David was broken by his sin and pursued and forgiven by the Lord David experienced the pains of this world through the death of his child, and he sought out and found comfort in his God. These trials and tragedies have marked David and changed David. They've made David a better man, a more compassionate man. And I think this is a valuable lesson for all of us. We, like David, at times are confronted by our sin and the consequences of our sin, and we can either run towards God or we can run away from God. You see, what we do with tragedy, what we do with suffering, what we do with our sin, it will either make us a better man or it will make us a bitter man. If we run towards God in repentance and in faith and in worship, it will make us a better man, a better woman. But if we run from God, if we have a fist in our pocket, if we're angry at God, if we curse God, it will make us a bitter person. How do you respond when life seems so broken. Run to God. Don't run from God. If we run away from God, it will make us a bitter person. But if we run to God, it will make us a better person. By the grace of God in his life, David responds to his sin and death of his child with repentance, humility, faith, and worship. And it changes him as a person. Verse 24 again, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into, lay, went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. The name Solomon comes from the word shalom, which means peace. And so Solomon means 
Yahweh's peace or also Yahweh's restoration, kind of a return to Eden. This name that David has given to his son, this name Solomon, is a testimony of what the Lord has done in David's life. You see, after David had run away from the Lord, after David committed adultery and murder, during those eight months, he describes it this way. He says, when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, the Lord's hand was heavy upon me. For those eight months, David was far from God, and he was was a miserable person. But then the Lord pursued David, confronted David, and restored David. He restored David's relationship with with the Lord, but he also gave him peace with his creator once again. The name Solomon was a testimony of God's work to restore David and bring him peace with God once again. Verse 24 continues and it says, And the Lord loved him, the Lord loved this child Solomon, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah. Because of the Lord. The name Jedidiah means beloved of Yahweh. What an extraordinary nickname to have. Given by a prophet of God. That this child was the beloved of the Lord. Remember how we said that David and Bathsheba's first child was a type or a shadow of Christ by dying for the sins of another? So also this child of David and Bathsheba is a type or shadow of Christ. For in the fullness of time, God would send into the world a greater Jedidiah. Again, meaning a beloved of the Lord, the beloved of the Lord, the beloved son of God. And this greater Jedidiah would come and embrace the name of Solomon because it would be through him that God and sinners would be reconciled. Through him that we would acquire restoration in our relationship with God and peace with our creator God. This child to come would be given a special name. Not Jedidiah, not Solomon, but the name Jesus. And we read about it in Luke 1. It says, the angel said to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name his name Jesus, which means Savior, or Yahweh saves. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You know, at Christmas, it is tempting to celebrate a lot of things, and it's good to celebrate a lot of things. We celebrate homecomings of of college students coming home. We celebrate really good meals. We celebrate fun gifts. We celebrate songs. We celebrate cheer. We celebrate charity. We celebrate a lot of great things. But forget not what we must celebrate first and foremost. We must celebrate Christ. For Christ is the promised child of God that would bring us peace with God and would restore our relationship with God for all eternity. He is the one who would put an end to death and give us eternal life. Let me end with this. On uh, December 24th, 1914, something miraculous happened. Uh, It was in the heart of World War II and uh, it was happening on the front lines of the warfare. It began with some German soldiers who came out of their trenches 
with Christmas trees under a banner of truce. And they were singing a song. And as they were headed towards the enemy line, singing this Christmas song, carrying these Christmas trees, they were shot at because the other, the other, the allies didn't know what to think of them. Eventually, they heard the song that they were singing. It is a famous Christmas carol that you have probably heard, Silent Night, Holy Night. And once the allied troops heard the songs and saw the trees, they fired back, but not with weapons, with their own chorus, the first Noel. When they were done singing the first Noel, the Germans applauded. And then the ceasefire began. And it stretched over 500 miles where man had goodwill towards one another. Soldiers from these opposing armies came together and they shook hands and they exchanged gifts. They even shared photos of their family back home and, and, and they played soccer together. Some of the men even exchanged addresses so that they could write one another after the war. But then after Christmas was over, they went back to their lines and the war continued. How should we as Christians approach life in a fallen world? And more specifically, how should we as Christians approach Christmas in a fallen world? Well, we grieve the death of those who we love. We grieve the, the fallenness of the world, but we also worship God at Christmas and we celebrate Christ at Christmas because he is the beloved of the Lord who was sent by God himself to save us, his enemies, from our sins, to give us restoration and peace with God, not for a day, but for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful Again, that you do not shy away from, from our experiences in this world, the hard experiences that we have in this world. And yet, Lord, you always point us to the hope of Christ. And so, God, pray this Christmas season, even though there's, 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 there's a lot of hurry getting details done, that we would pause and that we would consider the glory that God became a man to rescue us, to save us to yourself to, to create peace between us and you, to restore our relationship with you. God, may we be enamored by your love that sent your son Jesus to be born, to die, and to raise again, to give us life with you today and forevermore. Help us this Christmas season. We need your help by your Holy Spirit to ponder anew the joy of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.